0: Listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it's the evening of Monday, the 2nd of August in Seoul, and at various times in England, China, and Cambodia, where I'm joined via Zoom by three guests from the North Korea tourism industry. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you all please to leave a review about this podcast wherever you can, and please share this episode with everyone you know and three people you don't. Secondly, check out nknews.org. Consider buying a subscription. If you sign up for the annual plan, it's less than a dollar a day, and that helps to fund the excellent journalism that my colleagues put out each and every single day. Also, if you have any feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, please email us at podcast at nknews.org. All right, today's podcast topic is about the future of tourism uh, in North Korea. Uh, I did reach out to people in the non Western tourism market in China, Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, but unfortunately they either didn't respond or turned down my requests politely. As a result, I have a complete manual that's a panel of three white Western men from the English speaking world, but I'm sure that they will make up for any lack of diversity in diversity of opinion and experience. First of all, joining me from Cambodia is Rowan Beard, who is North Korea Tours Manager for Young Pioneer Tours or YPT. His first visit to North Korea was in 2012 and he's been based in Asia for over 10 years. Hi, Rowan, thanks for coming on the show. Hello, Jacko, thanks for having me. Where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, I don't have Twitter. <laughs> Excellent, you know, until about six months ago, that was also true for me. Uh, I thought it was a bit... <laughs> Uh, a bit dangerous and also a bit of a time suck, but uh, but now uh, I'm on it for work purposes. Uh, next guest is Simon Cockrell, the Corio Tours general manager, and he's been on the NK News podcast before on episode 91. Uh, Simon, are you on the
1: Twitter? Um, my company is, so you can find us at Corio Tours.
0: Okay. And lastly, we have Henry Ma, whose love affair with travel to the more unusual parts of Asia began at the age of 18. And he is the author of the third and most recent edition of the BRAT B-R-A-D-T, travel guide for North Korea. Henry, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you very much, Jacko. And thanks to all three of you for your time today. Uh, First of all, I thought we'd start off with a difficult question. Uh, Tourism to North Korea and other authoritarian countries has a bit of a bad rap and comes in for some criticism. Can you share with our listeners some thoughts about what benefits tourism brings to North Korea, to the people of the country, to the tourists themselves, and perhaps even more broadly?
1: Who who wants to kick that off? I'm happy to do so, if you like. By all means. So. Which part would you like me to answer first?
0: (laughs) Yeah, so tourism to North Korea, how does it help North Korean people? I should rephrase it. Tourism to North Korea, what does it do for the people of North Korea? Uh,
1: For most of them, it doesn't do anything, because most of them uh, live lives that are not connected uh, and feature no interaction with tourists or travel companies at all. But for those who work in the field of tourism and the associated industries, restaurants um sites that tourists visit hotels transportation logistics provision and that kind of thing it supports their lives basically mm. it gives them jobs it uh, gives them income and obviously the things that come with that their families uh, benefit and so on but the main benefit i would say is a little bit intangible is that the north korean state controls the message in that's given to the people of their country through their complete uh, control of the mass media, and of course that message is propaganda, and it's relentlessly negative about the outside world, as we would expect, of course. And tourism does a little bit, not much, but a little bit, to facilitate a kind of counter narrative, whereby uh, you know if all you consume is North Korean news, you would think that the Western world was just made up entirely of psychopaths who are hell bent on destroying the Korean people and and think of nothing else all their waking lives whereas people who interact even in a very small way with tourists will see that that's definitely not true. Almost no tourists who've gone there are hell-bent on the destruction of Korea, at least not 100% of the time anyway. Mm. So it does provide a little bit of that. So that I think would be the main benefit. But it is, of course, incremental, it's tiny, and it's, you know, very insubstantial. But hopefully, over time, it might make a little bit of difference. And I can anecdotally say that it definitely has made a difference in the case of many people who I know and have dealt with there over the years. Okay,
0: cool.
2: uh, Rowan, Henry, thoughts on that? I would uh, agree wholeheartedly with uh, with Simon. I mean, uh, tourism to North Korea is one of the very few means of, of cultural interaction, however limited that is, there can be between the people of North Korea and the outside world. Having visited there, many times in the last uh, 15 or so years, I've been able to see, admittedly, just for the people that are exposed to uh, to travelers, the people in Pyongyang and the hotel industries and what have you, but they have been more open as time has gone by because they have had that limited exposure to the outside world, which otherwise they just wouldn't have seen.
0: Yep, no, that, uh, fair enough. Uh, Rowan, you, you're, you're chiming in there?
3: Yeah, and it, it just helps them understand uh those from the outside like what is the foreigners interest in north korea the north koreans have their idea on how they think uh, tourism in north korea should be but uh, it's the people who are coming in and their expectations and what they're interested in that's helped shape the tourism industry but uh, as simon and henry have said completely agree but uh you know there is that sort of we be- wait between the two that happening so it's uh every every year we're operating we're also helping expand the the tourism sector, which is the first, the first step into the country.
0: And mm. what now? What does uh, what what do the tourists themselves get out of it apart from bragging rights of having been to a a very unusual and rarely visited country? Uh, Henry, I'll I'll kick this one to you first.
2: It varies a great deal from from tourist to tourist. I mean, I, I think some people want to go there almost as a, a boxing exercise, just to say that they've been, mm. and they're typically the people that say, oh, two days, three days, you know, I just want to see a couple of monuments and then I'm happy to fly back to Beijing. But then there are people that go there and really want to go out and spend two weeks, three weeks there and really kind of have an immersive cultural experience and try to get their head around the entire country. I would say from the experience of traveling there, sometimes escorting group tours, it tends, I've found that it tends to be the slightly Kind of uh older travelers maybe people that traveled to the soviet union and other destinations that are way back when that really want to kind of try to cut through all the propaganda mm. and uh and just see how it is uh, with their own eyes and make, and make their own mind up rowan yeah it's i'd say the
3: majority of it is uh, just curiosity um the majority of the people that we handle are westerners and they constantly see north korea headlining uh in the media back home and so this this is like a natural thing that occurs to their minds and what is this country all about why is there so much bad that comes from this country and a lot of them make the decision to go into the country to see what it's like and everyone has their expectations before going to north korea and admittedly you, you, you meet a few people in, in beijing or in dandong on the, the border town and and china to north Korea. And people you know you get a couple of nervous nellies mm. but it's it's in the it's in the country where a lot of them see and do what that totally blows their perception on the country and what they thought they would have to do and uh, the itinerary they would have to stick to but it kind of makes it easier for all us travel agencies where it's uh we we kind of blow their expectation they see as much as they can they leave the country and uh they've uh a a lot of them actually leave the country with more more questions than they actually came into Mm. so it's uh yeah it's quite interesting
0: now is there anything more broad than that? I, I, I mean, are there any sort of loftier effects or broader, you know, regional uh, or global effects that tourism to North Korea has? Or is it just that it affects the people uh, of North Korea and the tourists themselves?
1: I would say that it's uh, the starting point for a lot of people who've gone on to do a lot more detailed work on North Korea. Mm. I think that's something to note. It's nobody's first trip. Uh, actually, within the Chinese travel market, it's a lot of people's first trip abroad, mm. but mm. for the so-called European market, the non-Chinese market, this is nobody's first holiday. So people tend to have traveled fairly widely, be pretty worldly, and they've made a choice to go somewhere which is you know, quite repressive in how pe- visitors are controlled and uh it's you know reasonably expensive there's no wi-fi that kind of thing so people have made an active choice to do something rather difficult and yeah i'm sure there are some people who go and enjoy the bragging rights but i haven't found that to be most people's motivation Mm. but there are a lot of people who come out the other side of a trip so fascinated that they make it a bit of a passion of theirs and those people have gone into uh journalism into academia into into think tankery, if Mm. that's a word, and have contributed greatly to the kind of mass knowledge and analysis uh, of North Korea. It's very rare, I think, for a lot of the uh, pundits who are genuinely widely respected uh, to not have been to North Korea as a tourist, first of all, Mm. actually. Okay, yeah, that's interesting.
2: Um, Let's see, uh, Henry, have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, as Simon said, I mean, generally the people that I've known have traveled I've—I uh, don't want to name names and organisations, but some of them have have gone on to uh, really create careers out of out of trips that started as a a four or five day trip to Pyongyang, and now they have visited Korea a dozen times or more, and uh, and indeed have gone into uh, you know the Foreign Office or other departments. So it it is a stepping mm. stone for many people to much more. It's uh, it's a country that I think people. Uh, if they do it under their skin, they, 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 they can never shake that off. Mm. And uh, it's uh, the people I know that travel, it's one that uh, people have kind of just fallen for whatever reason, head over heels in love with, for right or wrong, because it is so totally alien to, uh, to anywhere else on earth, as, as I'm sure we'd all agree.
0: Well yeah, and that actually brings me to my next
2: question. And what is it
0: that that makes each of you uh, continue to work in the uh, the North Korea tourism space? What fascinated or or gripped each of you? Um, let's start with Rowan.
3: I think I think it's mostly um, having that insight in, into a country, into a people and culture that a lot of people really didn't quite understand or um had no idea about. So having that sort of unique standing point of operating in this mysterious country and Taking people in, teaching them uh, something that uh, they, they would have no idea to expect. It's uh, that was definitely a that was definitely what got me interested, and it's also the the, the relationships you can have with the the North Koreans in the country. Uh, when I first went there, I was it's expecting to you know deal with uh, robots or whatever. That's, that's the usual expectations when people do visit, but it's uh, it's the friendships that are, that are forged and the the mateships that you encounter, especially during the real challenging times when you are working together that, you know, that kind of makes me miss even the, the people in the country right now from mm. um, COVID, them being completely isolated, having no internet, no phones. It's like, uh, I, and all this, the situations that are going there right now, I just yeah. hope that, uh, you know, the people I've uh, grown over the past eight years with, I hope they're all right and everything's good. But the only way we'll really know is uh, stepping back into the country. And once I can do that, I know I feel the the blood pumping through my veins again and i'll get back mm. to doing what I what's really passionate about simon
0: how about you you've been at it for a long time
3: yeah um and i've
1: always found it to be fascinating i mean i've I've never felt that i've got too jaded about it or anything like that i mean i'm a reasonable and uh, sober person for the most part so i'm i'm not going in saying you know wow gosh look at this you know amazing uh place i i consider it to be unendingly fascinating, remarkable, and unique, but I think that's as a result of analyzing it as such, not just uh, being blown away. So, but for me, I think what I really enjoy about it is, as Rowan said, you know, personal relationships that I've built up over the well nearly twenty years, I've been doing this um with people that I know there, but also, I mean, my main point of concern is uh, the customers and the clients and travelers that my company deals with. So, Mm -hmm. for me, I genuinely enjoy, you know, providing a a second to none service for them, Mm. giving them a better trip than they could have imagined. I mean, we make a lot of effort to prepare them by telling them, you know, this will be fascinating, this will be brilliant, but going above and beyond that and exceeding their expectations uh, is you know a genuine source of uh, enjoyment and gratification for me so a mixture of things really mm. personal professional and you know the selfish and selfless as well right <laughs>
2: henry i don't really know if i can add much more than uh, what uh Rowan and simon have said i mean it is somewhere from the, the the first time i visited in 2005 i just fell head over heels in love with i think every every trip even if it's you know the, 17th time to Panmunjom I still managed to find something that uh, (laughs) that that interests me or just something slightly different from the last visit a few months prior but uh, like Rowan said I mean the the personal relationships of the guides that you've worked with or even sometimes the hotel staff that have been a constant face over the years people disappear and get married and you think you'll never see them again and then you bump into them again kind of 10 years later Uh, it's yeah, it's a country, and a lovely people. And I think one of the things that Devin doesn't quite get mentioned enough about North Korea is really how your average man on the street, the average person has a, a lot more in common with us than most people would, would imagine. They generally have the same kind of aspirations in life as we do, and are just trying to, to get mm. through their day-to-day lives. The people are generally charming. And from the people that I've traveled with Often that's one of the biggest surprises for them is when they come back and say, wow, you know, yes, I enjoyed the monuments. Yes, I enjoyed that. But the people were lovely. People were genuine. People were kind. And uh, I've known many kind of it's hard to call them friendships when I can't just ring somebody up or pop them a WhatsApp and say, how are you? But, uh, but I, I suppose they are friendships in a way. Many good, hopefully lifelong friendships have been fostered over the years on, on yeah. various trips out there
1: i think that's well said by the way if i may say because um yeah even though the interaction between local people and tourists and foreign visitors in general is fairly fleeting and a little bit ephemeral you do find that um some you know connections are made that are a little bit deeper than surface level and a lot of the uh, tour guides and company management we work with they do remember a lot of their favorite clients from years past so you know if they were able to Uh, have deeper conversations, visit each other's homes, stay in touch afterwards. You know, you might find that people there aren't as nice as you think, but you might find that they're actually even nicer, Mm. Um, the the broader spectrum of human reality, I guess. But it it is true that even on relatively short trips in a controlled environment, people do find a way to make a personal connection, which is very sad when it has to suddenly be, you know, be ended so definitively at the end of the trip. Mm. Now,
0: Henry, a question just for you. You've written a guidebook for North Korea, as I mentioned, the third edition of the BRAT tour guide. And ever since my first trip to North Korea in 2010, when I learned that tourists are under the protection and supervision of their guides at all times, it seems to me that a guidebook about North Korea is a bit like selling surfboards to someone going to the Sahara Desert. You're not going to have much use for them while you're there. And in fact, you're not even allowed to take it with you. Uh, and it also reminds me a bit of the, those North Korean phrase books, which strangely have, strangely have phrases like "Can you help me get a taxi to the station?" and "I'd like to buy a one-way ticket to Wonsan." Uh, you'll never have a chance to use those
2: phrases. So, why are there
0: guidebooks <laughs> about North Korea? What purpose do they serve?
2: Well, the uh, the publisher uh, assured me before uh, before I agreed to the project that actually they, most of their guidebooks that they sell are sold to people in the knowledge that they'll that they'll never actually travel to the country. Mm. um which is a st- statistic that brad guides gave me whether that's true for a more conventional destinations i don't know but some of their best-selling guides in the past have been to uh, iraq and afghanistan and other such mm. destinations but uh, really particularly for my guide i i think it's trying to give a slightly different information present the information differently to how it may well be given on the ground.
0: <laughs> I should say to our listeners that you're, you're, um, there's a lot of information uh, in your guide, um, interesting historical background and stories, uh, for example, about uh, the Dutch sailors that were shipwrecked in Korea in the 1600s, and you know a, a lot of really interesting contextual and historical information. So it's not just you know uh, take the train to here and and you know take, have the taxi drive you up to to that place. It's yeah, it, it's uh, it's more of a country guide than just a travel guide, isn't it?
2: Indeed, I mean, much of the publisher's annoyance, I don't think I've provided any phone numbers in there whatsoever, because obviously, you're not going to be uh, calling ahead to the Arang restaurant to book a table. I mean, it's generally to give people a background of the entire country, what to see and what you can do when you're there, just as much so that if somebody you know, does buy the book, they can then, you know, ring up Simon, ring up Rowan or drop them an email and say, no, I've read this guide, this is what I'd like to do. I mean, it's mm-hmm. quite frustrating when you meet people, that had just got back from Korea, and then they said, oh, I've just read about this fascinating site in the guidebook. I didn't even know it existed. I would have mm. loved to have gone. So it's it's to try to give information and from a, a different angle. I mean, the North Koreans do publish some quite interesting guidebooks that you can pick up locally, but they tend to overwhelm people with uh, facts and figures. You know, the, uh, the metric tonnage of water that comes over a waterfall in any given hour and actually not talk about, you know, certain uh pertinent points so it tries to just be a, uh the other side of the coin mm-hmm.
0: yeah that, that's actually something that north and south korea uh in their tourist information have in common is that you'll often find a lot more uh information about measurements of things and you know how many trees were used to build this particular palace rather than you know the, the story about what happened there or, or something like that how
3: heavy a particular bridge is But uh, Uh, as Henry was saying, uh, with with the Brad book, I can tell you, mate, that um, although you're not allowed to bring it into North Korea, the North Korean immigration officers certainly appreciate it a lot lot more than uh, your competition hmm. of uh, the the Lonely Planet book because you've got the South Korea section and then there's a a tiny North Korean section at the back of that. And so when they look at the Brad guide and they hold it and it's heavy, it's got a lot of pages, although you're not allowed to bring it in, they go, yeah, this is a guidebook, all right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's certainly the best. Look in the field i found it a bit lacking in information on the metric tonnage of water oh, coming over various waterfalls but you know there's you just can't please all the people at the time
3: always the next edition
0: <laughs> a question for for rowan and simon here how do tour companies to north korea differentiate themselves don't all uh, companies and tour guides basically offer the same experience
3: well, the North Korean travel agencies certainly, certainly do, but it's, uh, it's, it all depends on what the agencies are targeting. Like who's their audience. Um, this is what differentiates our companies within each other. For example, YPT, we, we go for the, the budget traveler, um, the, or usually around the younger audiences, although we accept all ages, but you know, it's, uh, it, it, it all depends on the who you want to join your group. Who's going to be comfortable in your group. Who's going to mostly get along with each other. Who's more suitable for the traveler for the certain itinerary. Yeah. Simon? Mm. Yeah,
1: even within North Korea, the different companies there, they do have some variation in what they specialise in, and some of them have access to other places. Uh, Even within their companies, different departments have different specialties, and certain managers have personal contacts in certain areas so they can gain access for tourists uh, when different managers can't. But, yeah, broadly speaking they're all capable of offering broadly the same service and they're all trained and uh, mandated uh, to give access to certain sites and explanations in certain ways i mean outside the the companies such as ours honestly i really make it a point not to comment on the activities of other companies just to try and stay above all that i mean the most important is to you know really boringly just offer the best service to uh, the customers And really customize everything as much as possible what people are after because whereas most people when they first think about a trip to north korea they assume that there's only one trip they soon find out that actually there's a much wider range of possibilities than they expect so we can offer you know relatively budget tours tours that are focused on niche interests nature mountains sports that kind of thing that focus on different seasons, cycling, so, yeah. marathon running, <laughs> mm. cricket, that kind of thing. So it's important to be able to credibly offer the widest range of possible activities in a place structurally designed not to offer a wide range mm. of activities. Now, you'll find that 95% of tourists who go there are mainland Chinese in large groups, and they do almost exactly the same itinerary mm. every time. But that's not because they have to, that's because that's really all that the market demand, Mm. um, demands. Whereas if people are offered more opportunities, then they quite often choose something a little bit more complex, a little bit longer, a little bit deeper, as it were. uh, And that's what we try to offer them.
0: What tourist sites in North Korea, would you still like to see open that haven't been uh, available yet? Or what as yet impossible activities would you like to see made possible uh, to offer as a a tour? It's a good one.
3: Uh, <laughs> I think, um, one of the most common asked questions you have during a tour, especially if you're, if you're visiting Pyongyang, it, it stands out the most, but you've, you've got that, uh, the Ryugyong hotel, the, mm. the really tall hotel that, that Simon was able to, to visit a, a couple of years ago.
0: Yeah. Simon does have bragging rights mm. on that one.
3: He certainly <laughs> does. And, um, but it, it, everyone who looks at that, they just go and it looks complete on the outside mm. and the ones who have read up well. They know it's not complete on the inside but they still go well it's still standing
2: Mm.
3: the view up there would be fantastic wouldn't it and so that is one of the most commonly asked questions you get from people visiting Pyongyang, for sure but when it comes to what would we uh, like to open regarding activities um whether the the world's your oyster It, it, it all these ideas usually come to mind when you you have that person who calls in or emails in who will say something for example hey i'm a a i'm a wingsuit diver i I could jump off um out of planes or off mountains and you know is this possible to do in north korea
1: Mm
0: -hmm.
3: and it's it's always expanding on these sort of ideas from the people who do come you know there is a demand you you hope to supply it but as simon said the infrastructure in in north korea it's very limiting so there's only so much you can do uh, within that that narrow scope but you hope to expand it, and a lot of collaboration with the North Koreans, a lot of understanding, a lot of trust and respect can hopefully get you to open it. But there's a there's a lot of cool ideas out there, yeah, that uh, just been put on hold.
0: Henry, anything you'd like to see added in a in a fourth
2: edition of the Brant Guide? Again, I mean, where do I start? I mean, I, I do think it would be good if the Koreans could make it possible to to simplify the uh, the overland travel options in you know, opening up roads so, so people can access uh you know mount Pektu overland without having to fly you know passing uh. through jagang province so they don't need to back and forth on the same roads making uh, some of the domestic rail routes more feasible i mean there's a great deal that the koreans could be doing and one of the issues or an issue that i've often seen I'm sure uh, Simon and, uh, and Rowan would likely agree with, is that some of the disjointed efforts to, to promote tourism. I mean, they've got this massive Wonsan-Kalma development. Mm. They've got the new uh, the, the Yangdok spa opening. They've just kind of redesigned uh, uh, Samgion city, but these are all places that are actually quite hard to get to. I mean, they've got this amazing airport in Wonsan with no regular, reliable domestic flights and There's so much potential there, but I suppose, like Simon said, when 95% of tourists or or Chinese tourists are just doing the same thing, it's it's little argument perhaps now for uh, for the authorities to invest in really kind of Mm. opening up uh, more areas for for the small number of people that would actually would be interested at this time in doing it. But for the future, there's so much potential for the country to open up more. Those issues
3: you just listed, Henry, well, they're, they're not just an internal logistic issues as well. It's very much external. It's getting people in and out of the country on such a limited um, flight path and the, 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 the jets available with Air Corio or the other airliners who are able to arrive in Pyongyang or elsewhere in the once a, once a day train. It was such a, a logistical strain uh, just prior to COVID, especially when the Chinese tourism had shot up so <laughs> it's you've got those internal issues you've got those external issues still exist so it's going to be mm. in- interesting how this is all uh, handled once the once it does reopen S- uh,
0: simon was the uh, one San Kalma resort ever open to international tourism as far as you know
1: no and i don't think it's really built for international tourism in that sense either i mean it's it's far too large mm. the boast is that it has five thousand rooms i mean that would accommodate Almost the entire Western tourism market that are there over the course of a year. Right. If everyone had a single room, it's it's off the scale large. So I think a lot of the times I know um, pundits and so on like to focus on these mega projects. Mm. They say you know hardly anyone goes skiing at the yong ski resort. Lol, but that's clearly not built for foreign tourists anyway. Just mm. because foreign tourists can go there, it doesn't mean it's for tourists. So those things are just you know it might be interesting if tourists could go and stay at the San Kalmar Resort, but it's more interesting to stay in San town at the moment. So, I mean, I, I'd like to see those places open for sure, but I'd also like to see the kind of second tier urban areas open, more rural areas and ones that are more representative of the country, mm-hmm. border areas, you know, self-driving tours, visiting certain areas without guides that I don't see why you know, tourists wouldn't be able to just wander around Pyongyang without guides, that kind of thing. I think that those are um, aspirational, but they're not that aspirational. There has been some movement uh, over the years, but you have to aim, you know, ask for everything and accept a little Mm -hmm. bit instead.
0: Now, it's sometimes been speculated by lay observers that the opening up of new tourist options in, in terms of both destinations and activities is a sign of increasing liberalization of the North Korean system because they're letting foreigners do and see more in their country than the usual Pyongyang, Panmunjom, Mount Myohyang pilgrimage circuit. But isn't it more accurate to say that it's actually like tour companies like, you know, YPT and Koryo Tours that push their partners at the Korea International Tourism Company, KITC, to come up with new ideas and options so that both KITC and the foreign tour companies can find new and
1: differentiated
0: ways to make money.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're right in observing that everything that happens in North Korea is usually interpreted in the biggest policy sense. Mm. So first of all, everything that happens there is automatically done by Kim Jong Un. So if a new place opens that tourists can visit, then that's credited to a decision made by Kim Jong Un, which is ludicrous, of course. And most of the time, as you also said, it's not really down to the North Koreans to make the move to open things up. It's due to demand side pressures and also it's not just contacting our direct korean tourism partners that is a way of putting pressure i mean we don't work with only one travel company we have a variety of contacts Mm. there and it's possible to sort of put the squeeze from two different uh directions sometimes our partner one section of kitc is not supportive Mm. of initiatives that we come up with and so we find someone else to do it And kind of you know bully them a little Mm. bit. That's that's the job. We don't work for them; they work for us, and we work for our clients. So that's you know we're we're in the middle, and so we have to give a little shove. Now, some some years you gain quite a lot of access, relatively speaking, and some you get nothing or you go backwards. But you have to do your best.
0: Rowan, does that match Mm. your experience?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And it can be a, a bit of a tug of war when you are directly dealing with the Koreans. It's uh. You know their ideas always don't match your ideas and your demands from the the tourists and the customers you have, wanting to pursue these uh these projects in in North Korea. But it yeah it's uh it, even what Simon said when you approach other travel agency agencies in North Korea, there's certainly more than one, and a lot more have uh, spruced up over the past couple of years, mostly thanks to the the, the Chinese demand for visiting. Mm. But it's a uh, yeah it is definitely a one technique of making sure you know making sure like this idea you have can go ahead the north koreans are, this a lot of the times they're sometimes afraid to try something new i i, I think it's like mostly if something does go wrong or if uh, it doesn't go the way you're expecting to like people aren't, aren't satisfied with it like nobody wants to held accountable on their side so it's uh but if if it's done if it's been done before and it was okay then they're very happy for it to go ahead again but it's it's that person on their side who's responsible for you know for example doing a light example of a bicycle tour around pyongyang like if if uh, somebody falls off a bike and gets hurt for mm. example like nobody wants to be accountable for that making sure the group is, is and safe in, in, in those terms of regards but you know that's always the the ongoing battle with the greens it's, it's making that first step being like there you go that was cool everyone enjoyed that let's do mm. it again
0: now i want to talk a bit uh, about the uh, the Chinese tourist sector. I know that each of you deal with mainly Western tourists, but still, it, it's uh, an interesting comparison to make. Do you have any idea how much larger the Chinese tourist sector is than the Western one?
2: Uh, Henry, do you have any, any any numbers or any thoughts at all? Any uh, figures I've ever requested over the years for, from Koreans normally just get met with, uh, with a wall of silence. I mean, it, it is a much larger uh, industry than the Western tourists. I'd imagine that Rowan and Simon have better figures, but I would, uh, my understanding is it's uh, you know, 90% or more of the travelers are the Chinese travelers. But, but on the flip side, I would say that most Western travelers tend to go on longer trips, whereas you do get some Chinese just going in for kind of day trips or kind of two night mm. breaks. And obviously on those very short packages, spending a lot less money if they're going in on a, on a day tour to to you, than you would be if you're on a two week long uh, flight uh, trip coming in and out with Air choreo, staying in the best hotels and uh, mm. eating at the most expensive restaurants.
3: Right, uh, uh, Rowan. If you ask a North Korean how many Chinese visit each year, you're not going to get the same answer. Um, and there's multiple companies being involved, and I'm, and I'm I'm sure they don't share each other's figures with each other because mm. um, they want to remain quite competitive. But uh, as Henry said, it's definitely the, the most popular trip. Chinese to take into the DPRK is the one day trip into Sun right and that that was that got super insane in in the last couple of years um because you you, they got that logistical issue of that one bridge and it's the buses that cross in and out and it's the the time frame of these buses going Mm -hmm. in one direction taking an hour this way uh and then reverting the the traffic the other way and it was you you look at you stand in Dandong and look across the Yalu river at Sinuiju, and you just see a flock of Chinese, it was huge numbers, and that's into the hundreds of thousands. There's not that many Chinese that actually go down to Pyongyang. That's in the tens of thousands.
0: And yet at the same time, the the casino in the basement of the Yungagdo Hotel is almost exclusively caters to a Chinese market. When I went down there, I don't think I found anyone that could even speak rudimentary English. It was very much uh, catering to Chinese tourists. Simon, you wanted to say something?
1: Yeah, that isn't, That information isn't entirely true. So the Chinese customs, they give a figure, actually, to journalists who uh, make inquiries. And the figure that they give is around 350,000 Chinese people crossing into North Korea as tourists per year. That would have been for about 2019, 2018. Mm. So of that number, of course, it's not uh, even throughout the year because we could just say 1,000 a day. Mm. But in winter, far fewer people go. there's a cap on the number of uh, tourists going to Pyongyang. And that was capped at 1,000 per day because it was from the summer of 2018, it was getting up higher than that. And that was having great pressure on the tourism infrastructure, hotel rooms, guides, buses, and the capacity of tourist sites themselves, which as we mentioned, all, almost all the Chinese tours are the same itinerary. So everyone going to the same places, it, it, it was a lot. The majority of Chinese tourists over the couple of years before Covid closure did go to Pyongyang. They went to Pyongyang on the overnight train, stayed three nights in total, went down to the DMZ. Not many of them stayed in the Yanggakdo Hotel huh. though. So most of the people you would encounter in that uh, casino, they would be tourists. But it wouldn't, there wouldn't be hundreds of Chinese tourists at the Yanggakdo. Usually they stay at the slightly cheaper option. But there were certainly days in the highest parts of 2018, 2019, when there would be hundreds of tourists going to Synergy and a thousand tourists going to Pyongyang. And that doesn't even count the tourists going to Rasan as well, which could be several buses per day. So. This 350,000 is possible. Oh, okay, This
0: 350,000 is very possible. Yeah. Now, I wanted to jump off on the, the point that Simon just raised there, the the cap on the number of people who can go to Pyongyang, as well as uh, in terms of facilities, infrastructure, hotel rooms, guide numbers, buses, and the actual places that people go to visit the, the uh, you know, the, the house of Kim Il-sung's childhood, the statues, etc. North Korea does have a, a certain maximum capacity for foreign tourists. And it, wonder, it makes me wonder, with overwhelming Chinese interest and in increasing Chinese spending, is there actually a sustainable future for Western tourism? Or could it find itself uh, kind of elbowed or nudged out in uh, in favor of Chinese tourism? So
1: the, that, that- cap that never really applied to western tourists anyway because the numbers were are always a lot lower so i think what you the picture you paint Mm. could well be accurate but i think most most of the time western tourist numbers are are far lower and a bit more spread out the one exception being during the pyongyang marathon that the western tourists sort of fit into the gaps Mm -hmm. between the chinese groups and as henry said the chinese groups yeah they, they don't tend to go much further afield. They don't tend to stay for that long. So if you go to the East Coast, you can find you're still the only person or the only group there very frequently. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
3: Rowan, go ahead. Yeah, no, that's pretty much it. And actually I find that Western uh, tourists in, in certain situations, if it is quite busy on certain things, uh, Western uh, tourists will get a bit of a privilege over Chinese tourists. It's, it's easy to bump Chinese tourists mm. uh, to different date slots, uh, in cases like uh, you know not enough train tickets or not enough buses available um, it's very flexible for Chinese tourists to be moved around when westerners are coming in from other countries into China they got to stick to the Chinese visas and yeah they've got a schedule to keep so that, that's actually yeah, something that does happen but um, yeah the, 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 the Galma once on a tourist zone even though there's a ridiculous amount of rooms in it at least it's that is definitely focused more <laughs> towards Chinese tourists. I I would hope so if if Mm -hmm. the plan does go ahead. I um, I
1: think that I think that's got to be focused towards South Korean tourists. Ah, I I would have to disagree with that. The numbers of Chinese tourists are far too small for it. There's no way of getting there very easily. There's no. The market hasn't demonstrated any desire for large numbers of Chinese tourists to cross to that side of Korea. Otherwise, they would already be doing it. The Wonsan Kalma Resort is really close to South Korea. There's a road that drives up, there's a proven market for large numbers of South Korean tourists visiting an area really close by. Mm. It's also just outside of Wonsan, but there's no way for people to wander from there into the city and interact with people. It looks to me like a tourist resort for South Koreans. Mm. For sure.
3: Yeah. yeah. Just with that new airport that's located right next to it, needs way for Chinese to come in. It, 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 for sure, I'd agree, it's, it is South Korean tourists, but I, I can see them expanding a lot to the, the Chinese market.
1: Oh, yeah. I'm sure they would take, once it's finished, I'm sure they'll be happy to take anyone. They'd have to pay for it somehow. So (laughs) don't turn turn people away.
3: (laughs) (laughs) We have room.
0: On my last trip there uh, in 2019, I noticed that uh, a couple of the the tour guides were busy learning to speak Chinese so that they could cater for the the Chinese tourist market. Uh, Henry, is that something that you've seen as well?
2: Yeah, I mean, when I was first visiting Korea, it was very rare that you would encounter Chinese tourists. Uh, that has certainly changed you know, i bump into a lot more Chinese tour groups, particularly I would think kind of in the last kind of four or five years. most of the the Koreans that I work with understandably work, work as English speaking guides, and they generally tell me that they' kind of dread working with the, the Chinese groups, but I think that's largely down to the fact that the Chinese groups are often very large parties come in on these whirlwind tours mm. which are quite stressful for them uh, I think they're inclined to tip a bit less than some of the western tour groups uh, do as well and as I've been working with uh, you know with, uh, with English speaking guides if they've uh, trained to be an English speaking guide specialised in English and then suddenly get told at the 11th hour you've got to brush up on your Chinese because that's where the market's uh, moving towards they're often uh, <sighs> A little bit annoyed to do so, but but yes, yeah, certainly I've seen more people, more more guides, uh, trying to improve their Chinese because obviously yeah, the English-speaking guide market. Again, there are other, you know, French-speaking guides, Russian-speaking guides, German-speaking guides. You know, uh, you know, there's a lot less business for them.
0: Picking up on your idea, Henry, of, of uh, Chinese tours often being quite rushed and and somewhat stressful. Uh, it reminds me of the uh, the Chinese tour bus, sorry, the, the tour bus crash full of Chinese tourists in uh, April 2018 that led to, I think, the, the deaths of something like 32 uh, tourists. And uh, and Kim Jong-un himself visited the injured Chinese tourists in the hospital and expressed an apology and, and, uh, and grief when they went back. Uh, what did that incident do to the tourist sector in North Korea as a whole?
1: So when that happened... I spoke to our partners quite extensively about it, and they were terrified that their industry was going to collapse. Mm. Because actually throughout recent years, the Chinese tourist market has shown itself to be fairly fickle about perceived dangers. Every time there's a nuclear crisis or something, it just zeroes out. And then all of a sudden, there's, there's no demand. So for all the you know media reports about the amount of tourists that China sends to North Korea, China sends zero tourists to North Korea. Chinese people decide where they go on holiday, and it's quite easy for them to travel abroad, um, but trips to North Korea, it's nearby, it's relatively cheap and so on. So it is a choice that they make, and it's a choice that they don't make at certain times. So I think there was an idea in Pyongyang that you know the, the happy days are over, they can stop lighting cigars with burning 100 renminbi notes, that sort of thing. But the opposite happened, and I think that probably was down to the Chinese embassy being given access to the crash site and publishing photos on Chinese social media. And for Kim Jong-un appearing in the Rodong Sinmen twice, I believe, mm. visiting the uh, two survivors and sending the uh, remains of the victims back to Beijing. That showed people, first of all, that you could actually travel to North Korea because you can't have a tourist incident without tourism. And second of all, that their lives actually had some value Mm. in the past. There have been um, coach accidents before a couple that I know of uh, with a Malaysian group and with another Chinese group that involved fatalities and they were never mentioned Mm. in North Korea, never, never publicized at all. Hushed up, you could say, but just never really mentioned. This time it was a bit different. They showed they gave some face to use a cliche. They showed some value and it led to a huge increase in the numbers of Chinese tourists visiting North Korea. I think it's no coincidence that the, that the you know, numbers rocketed up after that incident. Mm. But that travel company was closed, uh, was taken out of business.
0: Sorry, that Korean tour company or, or travel company or the Chinese
1: travel company? Uh, to Korean, the Korean, Korean one, yeah.
3: Right. It, I, I was told uh, it was a lot of um, tourism investors uh, from people from different Chinese travel companies involved in that bus accident ex- too. Uh, which was, yeah, as Simon said, it was a, a huge tragedy, and it definitely shook up the industry and, and the regulations when it came to drivers and and buses. so yeah, it was it was definitely well well known and well talked about in the industry. Mm.
0: So ironically, it, it seems to have had uh, a, a booming effect on the uh, on the tourism industry, if, if as you say, the, it actually led to an increase in yeah. Chinese tourists.
1: Yeah, it's counterintuitive, mm-hmm. I think. And I, I felt the same way. But it also makes a, a kind of sense. It's not that people went there thinking, oh, it's going to be super dangerous. To check this out. They realized that you could go there. And they realized that, you know, this was a horrible accident that could happen e- anywhere. And I think they were fairly sort of sensible uh, about that rather than panicking and thinking, oh, my God, I'll go somewhere else yeah. when there are coach accidents everywhere, unfortunately.
0: Okay, now that we're all uh, warmed up and loosened up, let's talk about COVID-19. How has the tourism industry to to North Korea been affected by this pandemic? Let's see, let's start with Henry first.
2: Well, I think uh, in the short term it's, uh, or stops, or or put on pause. I mean, it was, uh, as far as I'm aware, the first country in the world to kind of close its borders, and that was getting on for or well, maybe over 18 months now and mm. i suspect it'll be one of the last in the world to reopen the borders so from the the regular contacts or the regular contact i had with uh, various people north koreans both in korea and out i mean mm. i still speak with uh, with a few people but uh, you know everything you know their lives are all on hold and even the koreans i work with in various embassies around the world you know they can't even return home so they're um, mm just uh, Nothing really is happening whatsoever you... from, from my perspective When were you last there, Henry? I was last there in the October, so October 2019. and I uh, uh-huh. was uh, you know had a, a, a nice uh, dinner out of the last night with friends in Pyongyang and uh, said, I'll see you in six months, so it's mm. uh, almost almost two years now, but uh, I'm sure the same experiences for Simon and, and Rowan, I'm sure
0: yeah Simon Rowan, when were you last there?
1: I was there in December. 2019, just for a couple of days, actually just for meetings. Mm. So I think, if you look at my Instagram, Simon Corio, uh, I only posted a picture of the airport because it was such a, you know, utilitarian <laughs> yeah. trip. Little was I to know that it would be the last one for quite some time. Gosh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Rowan?
3: Yeah, I was there a week before it closed. And uh... now what, what was that date? I, I've already it was it January 2020? uh it, yes January 2020 I was I think I departed on the uh, the 11th and mm-hmm. the news broke that it was closing on the 21st oh boy yeah, so just over a week I suppose but yeah if I knew that was going to be the last trip it, it actually ended on such a high note because it was the first tour after the new year's tour which mm-hmm. is usually the mo- one of the most popular tours of the year. certainly the most popular during winter when it's quiet and uh yeah just uh, popped in and prepared for an incredibly busy 2020. The expectations were high. Uh, everyone was really excited at <laughs> boarding that train at Pyongyang platform, uh, Pyongyang railway station, and just uh, waving some of my close mates goodbye and just being mm. like, yeah, okay guys, I'll, I'll see you next week. I'll see you for a Chinese uh, spring festival tour. And that didn't happen.
0: Wow. Now, uh, do you still have regular contact with your partners in North Korea?
3: Uh, in North Korea, the, the communication with uh, – there's two I, I regularly hear from during normal times. They, they mm-hmm. have emails. It's KITC and, uh, and Chilbo's on travel company up in North Hamgyong province in the, the northeast region where Mount Chilbo is. And communication has has stopped. And they, they, they stopped that fairly early on last year. Mm-hmm. But there is still um, they've still got uh, contacts out in China who still have the internet. That obviously and uh, they're responding on their behalf and uh yeah so we're still sort of able to receive information that way but it seems like uh they're cutting down costs
1: but i call pyongyang fairly regularly because yeah we, it's been quite a long time since we were regularly emailed by our partners there because they like to be cheap and not spend the money as rowan said it's expensive mm. to email from there so we usually just call them to be honest and i i mean at the beginning of the shut down i would call every week just to say hi and now i call our section of kitc every few weeks and then there are a few other organizations there that i speak to i mean non-tourism organizations and i call them with some regularity just to just say hi really mm-hmm. just pass the time and um you know bounce a few ideas back and forth but the thing is you know these phones In in a piece of news that will come as no surprise to anyone listening, they're not secure phone lines. So you're not having a conversation uh, or you can't be sure Mm. kind of, you know, Benthamite approach that you can't be sure that you're having a conversation with just one person. So if you say, how are things going, you can't expect them to be completely frank and open with you. They'll just say it's fine. So, you know, you just make of that what you will. But also, as Rowan said, most of these organizations have people overseas and it's much easier to deal with them i speak again to a number of them very regularly and they don't know anything really about what's going on in their home country because they too cannot just call their company and say really how's it all going Mm. because once again it's that insecure international phone line so it's difficult for them to speak to family difficult or impossible and then difficult to do anything other than a pragmatic, professional phone call. To.
0: Do we have any idea what kind of work activities your Korean counterparts have been engaged in to keep busy for the last year and a half?
1: Farming, farming,
3: yeah. <laughs> yeah, farming, mostly uh, agriculture, uh, livestock really? or, uh, yeah. Would that, so? would they be
0: sent out of the city for that? I mean, I, I don't know, there's a lot yes. of urban gardening yeah. in Pyongyang.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, out, out of the city. I see. Now, a critic
0: or cynic might say that the North Koreans who work in the tourism industry, they're members of the elite class, so they're most able to bear any financial or other strain brought on by a slump in business. Is that fair or accurate?
1: It's half fair and half accurate, Mm. but it's also, it's a little bit loaded. I mean, for one thing, they're not members of the elite class. I mean, they're members of a better class than most people, let's say, better not being a value judgment, I mean, better off but the elite is, is you know, a tiny fraction of a percent. That's not these guys, they're middle class. These are people who you know, own a nice pair of shoes and a basic pair of shoes. You know, that's not anything to write home about, let's say. They're, you know, they have disposable income and they have aspirational lifestyles, but they also have to work for a living and, and save up watch the pennies, that sort of thing. They're, they're what passes for a middle class. Now, every country, the class system is uh, determined differently, right? So being from Britain, I'm well aware that you can be a penniless elite and a uh, you know wealthy working class, that kind of thing. But North Korea is not like that. It's mostly defined by uh, your income and then your social situation as well. And most of the people we work with, they're not any kind of political elite. Some people are party members, but that's very common. In North Korea, but mostly they're just, you know, they're white-collar workers. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, Henry, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, the same sentiments as uh, as Simon. There, I mean, uh, yes, they're certainly not the elite. Yes, you know, when the going is good, if they have generous tour groups, and let's not forget that people that work with Western tour groups. It can be very busy in the high season, but in, in the low season, occasionally kind of weeks go by when they're not really doing much work anyway, even when you know when things are good. They do make a lot of money at times off tips. But uh, you know, if you're a guide that's been working for kind of five, 10, 15 years or more, those tips aren't just for you. It's not just for meals out. I mean, they've got a, a large extended family that uh, that also benefit from the hard currency that they're exposed to. So uh mm. You know their will have been hit very hard and it's i just uh, heart goes out to uh a lot of these uh these friends we all have out there because you know well, i too assume that they're that they're farming but really we can only speculate as to what mm. they're doing you know th- this very minute while we're all having a, a chat you know talking over the internet uh living a comparatively comfortable life
0: mm. yes uh we we know uh,
2: we heard from rowan just a,
0: earlier that uh North Korea was one of the very first countries to go under a, a very strict international travel ban. You know, it may be that way longer than any other country. Uh, it's been eighteen months uh, since practically nobody has travelled in or out of that, that place. So there's been a lot of speculation and, and some analysis on NK News about when the border might reopen, uh, allowing trade with China and and also foreign diplomats to return, as well as North Koreans who are currently outside North Korea but cannot return home. If if that's you know, if that takes longer for tourism to restart, has COVID-19 permanently changed tourism to North Korea, or has
3: it killed it? Rowan, do you want to start off? I wouldn't say it's it's killed it. How's it changed? It's just a big pause button that's hit. I'm sure that once the DPRK feel comfortable to reopen their borders to tourism, I, well, that's that's going to be the big question. It's like how much of it you know would have changed once we re-enter, but it's we just got to play the waiting game when it comes to it, and there's you know it's it's gone on longer than many of us had, had earlier expected, especially when it f- was the first country to close uh, mm. wasn't the first time they made a decision like that with uh with Ebola, which has been pretty well covered by NK news and yeah. yourself on previous podcasts but yeah it's uh the everyone who i who I know is involved with the tourism industry on the North Korean side who are based outside of North Korea, they're all just uh they're on standby and you know they but they're all well aware it's not going to be a quick easy job it's uh wait until the the big confirmation but yeah we just have to wait and see
0: Mm. Uh, simon or henry do you want to add anything
1: yeah it's not the industry is in hibernation fundamentally i mean uh there's no way of running tours, there's no one, there's not even ways of doing virtual tours and things like that to a degree that would be particularly worthwhile. So it's just yeah, as Rowan said, it's just a waiting game. So this is the third pandemic shutdown that I've been through. uh, And it's by far the longest and the most painful one. And there's no end in sight. So it's not a great deal of fun. But I think you do have to count your blessings a bit that it's it's far worse for a lot of other people so but is it
0: possible that it could go back to the old normal that it is just a a long pause basically uh or, or is it more likely that i
1: would i would think that it i would think that it will i mean that i know that there's this popular belief that north korea somehow relies upon the revenue of tourists to survive but that's been proven incorrect um in this case and was clearly incorrect in the first place so um i would disagree that there's any sense that as soon as they open again, they say, right, we've got to get, you know, the money, we've got to get 10,000 Western tourists Mm. to support our entire nuclear weapons supporting economy this year. So we'll throw the gates open and we'll let them wander freely and do what they want. That's, you know, that's just not going to happen. I would imagine they reopen with the same limitations and rules and regulations as before, and possibly even more in terms of control of geographic Mm. movements, they might, they might, um, not allow access to some of the more peripheral sites in the short term. But I don't know, and frankly, nobody mm. knows.
2: No. So I would chip in and say, one of the issues of travel to North Korea, which has always been bubbling over long before COVID, that if the country was to, to open today, mm. it would still in essence be closed because when you, you have to really, for most people go through a third country, when you have to go through China or Russia, countries which are closed or have their own sets of rules it becomes you know almost impossible for for most people to get uh so you know if north korea is open china russia is still closed it's you know you're stuck i mean mm-hmm. they used to years ago have you know or decades ago have kind of co-chair agreements with aeroflot and things and my colleague of mine used to regularly visit in the 1980s, used to always travel there flot and would say, oh, you know, on the way home, you have breakfast in Pyongyang, lunch in Moscow, uh, dinner in London. You know, those days are long gone. And I think it, it does highlight how uh, you know, North Korea is, is, is quite isolated. And they'll really have to just kind of adhere to the rules uh, that, that China or Russia have in place or somehow comply with those rules to allow people to, to come or go without too much difficulty.
0: Uh, without betting money, uh, can we make a best guess on when it will be possible to take tourists
1: to North Korea again? I mean, it's with betting money. I'll give an exact date. Oh. It depends how much money there is. <laughs> but without betting money, I would say a year plus from now. From now. So we're talking
0: late 2022.
3: Yeah,
1: guess. That's, that's a guess,
3: yep. though. I mean, that's all anyone's got. To be yeah, honest. yeah. Uh, Rowan? Yeah, sorry. Um, my internet connection was pretty bad and it, it jumped in and out, but I heard Simon say late 22, so I can, can jump to the, <laughs> I can kind of guess what the, the, the question was, but yeah, no, I, I'm expecting, you know, we're, we're expecting North Trade to be certainly at least the end of 2022 or early 2023, we hope,
2: fingers crossed, double Gosh. fingers. Yeah, uh, and Henry? well i hope sooner but uh, i think those are pretty uh, those estimates are pretty pretty on board with what i think i mean I, a few months ago i was saying to people april 2022 for the 110th anniversary of uh, of kimmelson's birth but yeah. uh, i wouldn't place any money on that bet these days mm.
3: and yeah, it's a shame that's
2: going to be a big one
3: yeah
2: when they closed the border last year and the
1: pyongyang marathon was cancelled we were asked by our partners there uh, in the marathon organization, you know, we're cancelling it for now. What do you recommend we do? And we told them, just push it back till October. It'll be fine. So, you know, that's how much you should listen to my guesses about when it's going to happen, you know. <laughs>
0: Have you been talking have, have any of you been talking to your partners in North Korea about a possible reopening have you put to them that you think it might be as late as as late next year and have they said uh, we can't say or uh, maybe
3: i they always, don't know so uh, anything they say will be prefaced by the fact that they mm-hmm. don't know i i've always been the optimistic one and they're the ones being like no 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 calm down
0: <laughs> really
3: <laughs> yeah they're they're very very realistic on the situation especially those who are Outside of of North Korea, and they're reading. I'm sure they're gathering the news from elsewhere in the uh, in the world and seeing how other regions of the world are opening and then soon closing, and then opening and further regulations. and I think they're seeing this and thinking like, oh, you know, it would be tricky to to handle something like that, especially as Henry said, you got to go through a third country.
1: Yeah.
3: So, um, yeah, I think they're just going to clearly wait until it's it's all systems go. There's a green light. Definitely less risk of um of COVID or anything else in in the future of coming into North Korea. And
0: what kind of precautions might be put in place in North Korea to make sure that foreign tourists don't bring in some new variant of COVID-19 or another virus entirely? Would would North Korea, uh, well, and a secondary question, would North Korea be likely to demand uh, vaccination
1: certificates? I would have thought so. I mean, you know, not to say anything wildly controversial, but why on earth wouldn't any country demand vaccination certificates that seems like a baseline thing for Mm -hmm. me as a you know i'm pro vaccination which again shouldn't be a controversial thing to say so yeah they'll i can't imagine them saying yeah you can choose if you want to be vaccinated or not because they're not a country that's institutionally big on people choosing for themselves Mm -hmm. after all right so there'll be that at least maybe even some mini quarantine if there's some rapid and reliable test, let's say, that takes 24 hours, then maybe they, everyone can't go out for 24 hours or have to wear a mask all the time or something like that, possibly. It's it's uncharted mm. territory, so nobody really knows. But also, you know, the local people there, they're already a little bit on the cagey side when it comes to uh, initiating interactions yeah. after a year and a half and, and going ahead two years, three years, however much of you know, being told the outside world is a disease-ridden mm-hmm. hellhole, uh, are they when the first foreigners rock up and wave to them for, as they're getting off a tour bus, or approach them when they're having a picnic in the park? Are they just going to pack up and leg it because you know <laughs> here come the become the plague mongers? Because that would not surprise me at all, because that that kind of already happens in some places. Let's say some unnamed other countries where where uh you know the blame is placed on a certain sector of the population mm.
0: uh yeah i i, I wondered whether um, there might be other precautions like whether north koreans might ask tourists to uh, to wear masks when inside the buses or buildings uh you know even after uh,
3: uh drop- for sure yeah oh so, sorry sorry my internet has been it's been funny uh, i just wanted to carry on what simon was saying like even before covid the north koreans are still kind of funny about germs it's when you have that tourist who's showing signs of a of a flu they were still like hmm it's probably better for him to sit at the back of the bus mm. <laughs> so he can get you know have some air to himself or even like a, you know you're you're hiking in the mountains and you've got a water bottle you, your korean guy finished theirs and you're like oh I have mine and they'll look at it and kind of be like oh and they'll, they'll put their, their finger around the rim of the bottle and they'll drink to make sure you know they don't catch my cooties or whatever so they've always been very precautious about foreign uh, diseases and germs or whatnot. Uh, something I've always noticed.
0: Well, th- this r- kind of brings up the question of whether there is actually an active interest within North Korea to returning to international tourism. And on the one hand, we've got Simon saying earlier that uh, you know North Korea is a bit uh, already a bit suspicious of uh, of plague monger foreigners coming to North Korea, uh, and then somebody else, I like think it might have been Henry or Rowan, said that uh, actually the North Korean economy doesn't depend on foreign tourism. So, is there actually an active interest? to going back to, uh, to having international tourism again. Are you hearing that from your partners?
2: You,
1: you, we would hear it from our partners because our partners work in that field, right? So they are professionally, mm. and financially motivated to want a tourism market to exist mm-hmm. again. But in, in the greater sense of North Korea, probably not because there's never been you know, an actual ministry of tourism. There's never been much in the way of actual tourism mm. policy. You know, back in 2013, when it was the 60th anniversary of the foundation of their first travel company, uh, Kim Jong Un said he wanted to have a million tourists, and that mm. was it. That that's the entirety of his policy position. But that's not a policy position. That's just an aspiration, and that's what it was taken as in North Korea. But when it was reported outside, it was as if he'd given some kind of quota, and you know, got the got the man-eating dogs ready to enforce that. But the reality was, it was just a mandate. Uh, For those companies dealing with inbound tourists to continue and to increase their work, there was no actual expansion of where people could go or anything like that. So there isn't really much government support for tourism anyway, it's permitted and tolerated, but it's not uh, promoted in a big way by anyone outside of the direct tourism industry.
0: Rowan and Simon, are your companies committed to continuing North Korea tourism or restarting North Korea tourism as soon as it's feasible again?
3: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. You know, we're doing our best to make it through. You know, we're down to one light bulb carrying it from room to hmm. room, that kind of thing, you know, two <laughs> meals a day and all that. But yeah, it's <laughs> important to make it through. We've, we've been in business a long time and it would be a shame to see it, to see this be the end of it. But we believe there's a market after COVID and we will be around uh, at that time.
2: Henry, do you hope to return there again soon? Yeah, I mean, the, uh, the moment it's feasible, I'll be on, uh, Well, hopefully be on the, uh, on the first flight. I mean, uh, I can't wait. I mean, I'm adamant there will still be a tourism industry. It may look a little bit different than it did in, uh, in 2019, 2020 when it all closed, but, uh, uh, but it'll bounce back. It may look a little bit different, but uh, yeah, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure the three of us will all be there.
0: Now, practically speaking, all tourism to North Korea has to go uh, almost all tourism has to go via China. Uh, China had this um, or made this announcement a little while ago that uh, people travelling to and through China would have to be vaccinated with a, a Chinese-made or Chinese-approved vaccination. What's the status of that, and how would that affect tourism to North Korea? Uh,
3: that was an early policy. They, I think they announced that in April, but I think that would definitely change. I, I think they they did that so there's a lot there's a lot of uh, Chinese vaccines going out to nearby China. I think I've reached as far as Serbia.
2: Like, mm-hmm.
3: I'm, I'm in Cambodia, I received the Chinese vaccine, uh, Sinovac. And so that was kind of my goal being like, oh, if I get this vaccine, then I can return back to China. But <laughs> it's not going right. to happen that quick. But when it comes to the time of uh, China reopening, because that's another big question is when there at the moment is in Nanjing. And even that disrupts domestic tourism in China, which goes through its spikes for the May Day, Labor Day, it was huge. And mm-hmm. now it's a uh, it's really affecting it, in, especially in regions in Tibet where we're still doing tours. It's it's very fickle. So I think China will open up to just vaccinated tourists, not so much having to be the Chinese vaccine.
0: Does any of you ever see uh, Vladivostok or or other uh, Russian places becoming a uh, a possible secondary option to China?
1: Not really. It's quite uh, the until the Russian Russian visa policy is a bit complex and. Um, doesn't have the transit policies that China have which which are fairly generous actually and enable people to fly into Beijing stay for six days without a visa and then fly on to another country for example North Korea of course that uh, requires them to take flights rather than trains but it does at least give options if you simply don't want to bother with Mm. a visa also Beijing is you know a major capital city and Vladivostok a place that I have been many times over more than 20 years is not a major, major capital city. It's, it's a very fun and exciting regional city. So you know, the reality is more people are going to be coming through uh, through Beijing on Shanghai than than from Vladivostok. But if they were to have more flights rather than just the twice a week, if they were to allow people to stay there, visa free or just abandon the whole visa hmm. thing in the in the first place, then it might have a bit of a shot. Henry,
0: do you cover this uh, option in your book?
2: Uh, I do. I do. I mean, I I would say that the, the vast majority of uh, of, of Western travellers go through Beijing. Most people I've encountered going to North Korea have already been to China. So they think, you know, I'll just spend a, a day in Beijing in transit. Mm-hmm. And when they weigh up the pros and cons, you can normally pass through China or get a, a relatively straightforward Chinese visa valid for a year or two, depending on where you're from. Or the hassle of going through the Russian visa, which obviously varies a lot depending on your nationality. But all things considered, passing through Beijing is a lot cheaper and quicker and more comfortable than going through Vladivostok. It would be great if there were more, or if there was a straightforward hub for people from Europe or other parts of the world to pass through, kind of Hong Kong or Berlin or interline flight uh, arrangements. But uh, you I think that's still a, a way off, unfortunately. Hmm.
0: Now, Kim Jong-un's been in power for a little bit less than a decade. Um, have, you, have any of you noticed any differences in uh, attitude towards international tourism throughout the Kim Jong-un era? Would you say that it's been consistent all the way through or that it was a bit different at the beginning and, or in the middle or just at the end before uh, COVID hit?
1: I would say it's been mostly the same, to be honest. Yeah, I, I know. Sorry, there's a really brief yeah. answer, uncharacteristically <laughs> brief answer. I would say, I would say
0: mostly Apart the same. Apart from that bit where, where he said, I want a million tourists here. Uh, for the rest, it's
3: been...
1: I think he then later said, make it two million yeah, it was, or something It, it, like it was that. up to <laughs> two million or
3: something because, yeah, they, they reached the first <laughs> one, right? <laughs> yeah, Rowan
2: or Henry, have you noticed any changes in attitudes toward tourism? I would say that you know, certainly a little bit more of the country has opened up, whether that's down to, to Kim Jong-un or whether that's just a natural development of the tourism industry itself. Obviously, when he came in in what, the December 2011 and the the April was the, the grand hundredth anniversary uh, mm. of Kim Il-sung's birth. So there are lots of new kind of flagship projects, and things coming on board at that time, not particularly aimed at, at foreign tourists, but it was something that foreign tourists could access. So. Certainly, I would say that in Pyongyang, you know, there there are more there are more things feasible for tourists to do, you know, better accommodations, better restaurants, new experiences feasible. But I don't particularly ascribe that down to uh, Kim Jong Un's uh, directive. Mm-hmm. Mm. Things things have certainly
3: changed whilst he's been in power, but it's hard to say if it, you know. who who, how or why it happens but you know the 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 tourism college is now at the tourism university it's a standalone university and they've shown a lot of interest in that there's been a lot of travel agencies in north korea north korean travel agencies that have popped up so it's certainly encouraged by someone hotels gone through massive renovations uh yeah um, there has definitely been an over the past 10 years
1: I I think these are all ascribable to market forces, though, to be honest, these are not not policy driven, they're unrelated to who's in charge, they haven't been accompanied by a change in the actual rules regarding tourism Mm. or anything like that. So the demand has grown, uh, especially among the key market, which is Chinese Mm. tourists, and the, the infrastructure has sort of Tried to grow with it, and obviously hasn't worked out because uh, that limitation was brought in. But yeah, I think that this is all a result of a of a higher demand.
0: Final thoughts to leave us with today, gentlemen. Starting off with uh, well, with you, Simon.
1: Oh my God! Final thoughts. Hang on. Um, on the spot. Well, look, I you know I really hope that uh, people stay focused on North Korea and stay interested and intrigued the NK news podcast has had an absolutely stunning array of guests. And on both of my appearances, because I've been honored to mm. do two, I've felt a little bit like an imposter because when you have people like Stephen Began coming on and banging on for two and a half <laughs> hours about the highest level stuff, I feel like I'm talking about the most, you know, the irrelevances of a of a fairly low down industry. But then I realise that actually, tourism is important. A lot of people got their start in tourism. And it's a great way to interact with North Koreans, which almost no one really actually gets mm. to do. It's very hard to meet any North Koreans. This is a guaranteed way to do that and to not other them and to try and make some friends. Peace and love.
3: Thank you. Rowan? Well, yeah. Uh, well, for those of everyone who is at home and keen uh, to, to travel, you, the reality of the world is you, it looks, you, you're going to have to be vaccinated. So, and in this, this particular part of the world with China and North Korea, and or Russia, that's just the reality of the world. So um, yeah, keep North Korean in your interests. I hope everyone I know in the DPRK they're all good. And um, looking forward to meeting the new faces again, being back on the road, something I miss terribly after 18 months. Uh, I'll be shipping off to Eastern Europe soon as that region's opened up. So we're going to expand our tourism to Chernobyl, Transnistria, and elsewhere. So that'll hopefully. Keep me personally busy mm. whilst uh, I, I wait for uh, the DPRK to open up like a flower.
0: Okay, thank you to Rowan Beard at uh, Young Pioneer Tours or YPT, and then lastly to Henry Ma.
2: Well, I would just add that uh, you know tourism is a is a relatively harmless industry which does help foster you know, cultural interaction and in intense kind of friendships between you know travellers between countries. North Korea isn't going away. The industry isn't going away. As we've said, it's all on pause. The country is under kind of intense pressure. I mean, some of the the sanctions just seem to build year after year. And uh, hopefully tourism is a way to kind of cut through that. Helps keep not everyone, but, you know, a good few thousand or more people employed in North Korea. And uh, just hope that everyone, everyone there is uh, is managing as well as possible and that life will return to normal for all of us
0: and thank you to henry maher of the uh, that's ma double author of the Brat tour guide to north korea thanks to all of you simon rowan and henry for joining us on the nk news podcast today ladies and gentlemen if you already have an nk news account and if you're a think tank business or academic institution take a look at nk pro our nk pro platform offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the korean peninsula inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today Also, if you have any feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, to Arius Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating the podcast, and to Gabby Magnuson, our new post-recording producer genius. Thanks, and listen again next time.